Let him have it, Chris. Let him have it. Let him have it. Buckle. Switch for everything. You're listening to Aerial View on WFMU East Orange and worldwide on the internet at WFMU.org. I thought I'd take this opportunity to talk about this Amtrak ride I took from 
Newark Penn Station to New Orleans in 1997. I was going down there to talk to a man about a job and to visit with some friends and because I couldn't afford a sleeper car and I knew I would probably be awake for the entire 28 hours, I decided before I got on the train to snort a whole bunch of methamphetamine given to me by a friend. I thought this was a good idea at the time. As it turned out, it was a really bad idea. And because I had a journal with me at all times back then, I wrote down a great deal of what happened on that trip. And now, riding that train high on methamphetamine. September 1st, 1997, 3.08 p.m. Just boarded train 19, the Crescent, to New Orleans. Don't know how much I'll be able to write as a train isn't as smooth as a plane. Bumpy ride, not conducive to riding. Where am I at in my life? I'm turning 35 on Friday, September 5th, four days from now, and I'm jobless, womanless, and broke. The train is passing through a very lush corridor, and I'm glad to be headed away from home and all that ties me down there. The only thing I feel I'm truly good at, and the only thing that brings me more joy than anything else, is doing a talk show. Have I explained the purpose of this trip yet? I'm going to New Orleans to see Dave Friedman, the general manager of WWOZ, a nonprofit jazz and blues station in Louis Armstrong Park. He may or may not have a job to offer me. I'm not even sure. Our last conversation of any length was much more sketchy than the first time I talked to him. He backed away from actually talking about a specific position to talking vaguely about things I could do for the station, and to my mind, it sounded like a freelance gig more than anything else. Going to the dining car for a beer. Too damn bumpy to right now. 6.55 p.m. The train just stopped in Washington, D.C. I went outside for a smoke. There's this very interesting-looking blonde girl sitting seven or so seats back from me, traveling alone, doesn't appear to have any rings on her fingers. She's tall and willowy, though I heard a foreign accent when she got a drink in the lounge car. French? She's outside now, walking down the platform. Don't know if I can muster the courage to strike up a conversation. I have another 25 hours of train riding ahead of me. Who knows how long she'll be on it for. It's so hard to go up to women and just start talking. I hate it, but they rarely approach me. They prefer to be the prey, I guess. Had dinner, gumbo and key lime pie in the dining car an hour ago. I was seated with an older couple, the Normans from Alabama, around Decatur, they said. They were returning from their 32-year-old grandson's wedding in Plainview, Long Island. Mr. Norman gave his age as 73, which would make Mrs. Norman 71. They were both in very good shape and quite talkative. I hope I'm that spry at their age. Mr. Norman said his grandson had married, quote-unquote, a nice little Jewish girl. The grandson and his future wife met in Fort Lauderdale, where he installs security fencing, and she's an accountant at a large corporation. Mrs. Norman said she had done some radio. I told them I was going to New Orleans to see about a radio job, and she enjoyed doing radio. It was great fun asking them about their lives. Mr. Norman had done quite a bit of jobs in his day. Worked building B-29 bombers during the war, drove his own truck, owned three at one point, for years worked as a policeman in the late 60s and then went into the post office delivering mail. He currently owns a six-employee company manufacturing antique reproduction furniture. He says he really enjoys it. I stayed off those two sensitive topics you're not supposed to discuss when meeting people for the first time, religion and politics. Though I'd guess, being their age and home state, they're probably pretty conservative and God-fearing. 
They were nice folks, very genial and good-humored, and I enjoyed their company. Meeting a couple like the Normans only reinforces for me what a late bloomer I am. They were married in 1944 when she was 17 and he was 19. They have eight children and 16 grandchildren, all spread out across the U.S. I sincerely doubt I'll be able to say the same at their age. You're listening to Aerial View. Hi, it's me, Chris T., with the Amtrak Journals. September 1st, 1997, 10.49 p.m. Spent the last few hours talking to Crystal, a 17-year-old girl traveling from Albany, New York, to Spartanburg, South Carolina. She's going to pick up a powder blue 1981 Mercedes her dad bought for her. Her dad is 62, had Crystal when he was 44 with his third wife, who was 24 at the time. Crystal's father has six other girls, three including Crystal by Crystal's mom, four by two other women. Crystal's dad is a lawyer who owns a popular nightclub called the Tiki Beach Club. Crystal is going to work for him as a bookkeeper after she returns from New York with her boyfriend and some possessions. Talking to Crystal made my head spin, frankly. We played card games, king in the corner, baseball, some solitaire game, while we chatted. She did most of the talking. It was like a Twin Peaks episode, her life. Here's other stuff I remember. Oh, but first, a description of Crystal. Blonde hair, cut short in a sort of Louise Brooks bob. Very nice eyes, an animated face. A Hilfiger sweatshirt, green corduroys, and sandals. All in all, a sweet-looking 17-year-old. I had no idea she was that young when I struck up a conversation. So here's more of what she said in no particular order. She's in love with a guy named Shane, a 21-year-old from Albany who she described as beautiful. Shane apparently did some modeling. That's how fine he is. He now works construction and has a four-year-old daughter named Kara by his ex-wife Brenda. More on this later. Crystal's dad has always treated her well, says she's his favorite daughter. Pampers her to the chagrin of her six older sisters. They apparently hate her for their favoritism he shows. Her mother lives in Albany and works at the DMV. Crystal has spent the majority of her life shuttling back and forth between Albany and Spartanburg. She doesn't have an accent and speaks in a vaguely hip-hop way, dropping the occasional yo. She likes hardcore bands, including Section 8, Sheer Terror, and a few others. She met Shane four months ago when she was out with a girlfriend and some guy she described as a dork. That dork wanted to stop and pick up someone else, and Crystal thought it would be another dork. The dork turned out to be Shane, the biscuit. Shane was mean to Crystal that first night, shoving her into a swimming pool while she was fully dressed. She was instantly smitten with him. When I asked her what he looked like, she got flushed and hemmed and hawed. Finally, she gushed and said, I can't even talk about it. It just makes me all... Eventually, Shane came around to Crystal's charms, and they moved in together and spent 24-7 together. Crystal has told Shane she loves him, but Shane only recently said the same back to Crystal. It came as he was headed out the door to go fishing. By way of coincidence, Crystal's father is a bass master, apparently appearing on the TV show of the same name. He also came close to running for governor, she says. Shane's dad is a serious alcoholic, and his mom is white trash. The mother does not like Crystal at all. Shane's 14-year-old brother is a chronic pothead and is being committed to rehab. Shane was also raped by his modeling agent, a piece of information Crystal got from Brenda, the ex-wife. At first, Brenda hated Crystal, threatened to kick her ass, but they've subsequently become friends. 
One day, Crystal was walking past Brenda's apartment and she stopped in for a talk. Crystal and Brenda spoke about Kara's last visit with Shane. Shane had Crystal bathing and changing the kid. She was pissed at him that he wouldn't help. When she mentioned this to Brenda, Brenda told her about Shane's rape and abuse at the hands of his modeling agent. Crystal feels this is the reason Shane can't undress his daughter or be around her when she's naked. Crystal feels sorry for him for all he's been through, and she knows he's never cheated on her, although he did slap a girl's ass in some nightclub one time. So Shane is supposed to move to South Carolina with Crystal. Her dad has promised him a job, but Crystal and Shane fought before she left. He didn't want to spend her last night with her. He said he had to help a guy and a girl he knew move. She got very angry with him and said she'd never speak to him again if he didn't spend the last night with her. Then he tried to make her feel better by explaining that he just couldn't stand to see her go and had difficulty saying goodbye. Wait, there's more. Crystal forgave Shane before she left and he made her promise she'd call when she got to South Carolina. She went out on her last night and got loaded. When I asked how she was able to drink when she was only 17, she said, I know lots of bouncers. I hang out with an older crowd. The plan, as it is, is for Crystal to drive the Mercedes back to New York and collect Shane and maybe some friends and then drive back to North Carolina. Her father supports her in all this. He was the one to suggest she bring Shane. Other things I learned? Shane and Crystal broke up one time because she wanted to go see a platonic male friend and he pitched a fit, warning her, you better not go to some guy's house. When she defied him and went, he broke it off with her. Then he tried to make her jealous by going out with some bimbo. Apparently the bimbo got raped by four of Shane's friends, but Shane wasn't involved. Crystal was also raped when she was 14. She went out with a bunch of guys, they got stoned and drunk, and she thought she'd crash where she was, being too screwed up to drive. One of the guys took advantage of her state. She says some girl in another room was also raped by a different boy. After that, Crystal went through a period when she thought she was gay. Then she got engaged to a 19-year-old guy, even though she couldn't bring herself to be touched by him. She broke off the engagement and moved to Albany to be nearer to her mother. Soon after that, she met Shane. Sorry this account is non-linear. I'm a little out of it, and I should probably sleep, but I can't. The train's too noisy. Oh, I almost forgot. Shane and Brenda broke up after Shane had been stabbed 12 times. I never found out why and Shane lay on his deathbed without a visit from Brenda. Oh, to be 17 and in love. Meanwhile, where's Shane tonight with his 17-year-old lady love on a train somewhere south of Lynchburg, Virginia? My money says he's out with some hot little number. Biscuits always get the gravy. I wish, God, how I wish I was stoned. Really, really stoned. I'm drinking red wine, but it ain't the same thing. You're listening to the Amtrak Journals on Aerial View. My name is Chris T. September 2nd, 1997, 6.20 a.m. Here's the part of the journal where I began writing a letter to Amtrak. Dear Amtrak, let me tell you about my absolutely horrible experience on train 19 from Newark to New Orleans, departing Newark Penn Station at 3.03 p.m. on Monday, September 1st. Everything was going well, until about 1.30, 2 a.m., when a passenger in the lounge car asked if he could get his children's milk put in a refrigerator. Apparently, his kids hadn't finished two small cartons of milk, and he was trying to keep it fresh. The conductor, who 
who I believe is named Victor, said he couldn't put the milk in the refrigerator due to FDA regulations. There were five or six of us in the lounge car, and we felt badly for this guy and his milk. I said, and I believe this is where my troubles began, why couldn't you have a guest refrigerator? I thought it was an innocent question, but it seemed to anger the conductor who said, the cars aren't engineered that way. You'd have to re-engineer the cars, or words to that effect. I'm writing from memory. I said, how much could a cooler cost? Another woman in the car said, you would think with the price of my ticket they could put in another refrigerator. About then, the conductor came back with a bag of ice for the man with the milk. He said it was the best he could do. As he was headed back toward the car, he said, if the people who are dissatisfied with Amtrak service didn't ride Amtrak, maybe the tickets wouldn't cost so much. I really couldn't figure out the logic in that statement, but the conductor seemed more angry than logical at that point. The only response I could think of was, I'd be satisfied with Amtrak making less of a profit in exchange for another refrigerator. To which the conductor angrily replied, you haven't heard, Amtrak doesn't make a profit. It was obvious to me and the other people in the lounge car that the conductor was in a snit. One of the women said, he's nasty. I replied, maybe he's just not happy in his work. We had just finished a conversation about that very topic. Several people laughed. The conductor exited the car and I stayed up until 2.30 or so, unable to sleep due to never taking such a long train ride before. Finally, I went back to my seat and tried to find a comfortable position for sleeping. I tossed and turned for a while, drifting in and out of sleep. I was finally falling asleep around 6.20 a.m. when suddenly two people plopped down in the seats directly in front of me. A light went on overhead, a chair back was adjusted, and two tray backs came down loudly. It seemed like these folks were trying to deliberately wake me up, which is what they did. Bleary-eyed, I stepped into the aisle to see that it was two members of the crew sitting in front of me eating breakfast. I tried to reassume my sleep position when the seat opposite me was occupied by the conductor, also eating breakfast. Maybe this is just me, but his walkie-talkie seemed louder than it needed to be. I turned around and looked at him, and he glared at me and said, Is there a problem? I said, No. I was just falling asleep, and now I'm awake. Then I got out my journal, stepped over to the conductor, and asked his name. He glared at me again and said with apparent distaste, Victor, why? Is there a problem? Again, I said, No. Then I asked the two crew members in front of me what their names were, and the male said, Scott. I believe that's what he said, but I was still groggy at the time. I asked the woman her name, and she said also angrily, Desiree. I got back to my seat and wrote down their names. They spoke to each other quietly for a moment, concerned. The conductor, still eating his pancakes, asked me again if there was a problem. I gave him approximately the same answer as previously. He then went over to the male and female crew members in front of me, and they all talked quietly for a moment. Then the conductor asked me my name. I gave it to him and sat back down. I got up again and asked him if the dining car was open. He answered, it's 6.30, isn't it? Then all three left the car, and I followed with my journal in hand, the one I wrote this letter in. I thought about eating breakfast, then changed my mind and got a cup of coffee in the cafe and sat in the lounge. I began writing again in this journal, and the conductor leaned over my shoulder to look at what I was writing. As I am writing this, the conductor is peering over my shoulder again. Several minutes later, the conductor and the two crew members flanked me, the conductor standing, still glaring at me, to my left, Scott directly in front of me, and the woman, Desiree, to his left. I sipped my coffee and smoked a cigarette while all three stared me down. The conductor again asked if I had a problem. I looked at him and said, you tell me. He said, you seem upset, or words to that effect. I said, I've been trying to sleep all night, and just as I'm falling asleep, 
This whole thing happens. These two eat their breakfast in front of me, and you sit opposite me, at which point the conductor interrupted. I was one seat back. I answered, that's because the seat directly opposite me was occupied. Then I continued, you mean to tell me that with the dining car open and all these tables in the lounge, you had to sit near me to have your breakfast? I apologize if I offended you earlier with the refrigerator discussion, but was this waking me up really necessary? He said, I don't know what you're talking about. I sat down in my seat and said, these two, indicating the two crew members in front of me, sit down to eat their breakfast just as I'm falling asleep, turn on the light, make a lot of noise. Scott said, I'm in the dark on this. I don't know what you're talking about. So I said, you folks had to come right near me to eat your breakfast? I again apologized if I had said anything out of line the night before. The conductor asked me what I was talking about. I reminded him of the milk incident. He acted as if he didn't know what I was saying. Then I said, okay, fine. Then the three of them left the car in unison. They came back a few minutes later and the conductor again asked what the whole misunderstanding was about. I again mentioned the milk and the refrigerator and he said, last night that happened? I said, yes. He said, I didn't get on this train until 2.40 in Newburgh. Now maybe it was the late hour or the lack of sleep, but he looked like the same man. He had the same mustache, which is what I said to him. He mentioned the name saying, you must be talking about blank. I was getting really mystified and annoyed with the whole thing, and so I played along. Oh, I must be mistaken, I said. I'm sorry. The conductor said, blank is about 10 inches shorter than me. My mistake, I said again. This has all been a misunderstanding. Then Scott came over and said something strange if the whole wake the passenger up scheme hadn't actually occurred. He said, sorry about that. No hard feelings. I said, no, no, I'm sorry too. Eventually, they left me to my coffee. Really angry now, I started writing this letter in the lounge car around 6.45 a.m. Soon enough, the three of them came into the car again, the conductor taking up a position directly behind me and peering over my shoulder, trying to see what I was writing. I closed my journal, got up, and went to my seat, where I continued writing. Shortly after, the conductor passed my seat and again tried to look over my shoulder. Again, I closed the journal. It's now 8.09 a.m., and the conductor has passed down the aisle again, and again tried to see what I was writing. Why is he so concerned? Does he know where this letter is going? Has he used his crew before to harass a paying customer, to dispatch some kind of bizarre payback? Is this how he deals with someone who makes an uncomplimentary remark about Amtrak? Well, I never write letters like this one. I used to be a customer service manager at a large corporation and had to read complaint letters all the time. Some of them were legitimate, but most were from cranks. I hate to think I would ever write a letter of complaint, but here's my first. Congratulations. I am not a crank. This is legitimate. I will never ride Amtrak again and will relate my terrible experience about your train on my phone-in talk show on WFMU. <laughs> You're listening to the Amtrak Journals on Aerial View. I'm reading from my journals from 1997's Amtrak ride from Newark Penn Station to New Orleans. I had gone down there to talk to a man about a job, and before I got on the train, I thought it would be a good idea to snort a whole bunch of methamphetamine to keep me awake because I didn't have a sleeper car. And as it turned out, it was a very bad idea. I'm in the middle of this letter that I wrote to Amtrak about a perceived slight. You may not know about WFMU, but I've done a talk show there for eight years now. Our signal reaches the New York, New Jersey metropolitan area. 
We also have a sister station in upstate New York at 90.1 FM. It reaches a good portion of the state. And best of all, we recently started netcasting via real audio on the World Wide Web. We get letters and email from Japan, Brazil, Sweden, all over the globe. So you can see why I can't wait to get back to my show, Aerial View, to talk about this whole thing. No names will be used, but I will talk about this terrible experience and encourage my callers to phone in with their Amtrak horror stories, too. I will urge everyone listening not to use your service, whether it turns a profit or not. By the way, why are conductors so grumpy and vindictive? Haven't they heard America has a service economy now? Or do they feel they can harass a customer like me because I couldn't afford a plane ticket? Probably the number one reason people ride Amtrak. Right below, it's better than the bus. In closing, please seriously consider the above line as my suggestion for a new Amtrak marketing campaign. It's better than the bus. Above a photo of those poor folks on a Greyhound. I'd also ask that you send me a copy of Amtrak's guidelines concerning where crew members are permitted slash encouraged to eat their meals. I'll gladly pay for a copy since Amtrak quote-unquote doesn't turn a profit. I'm dying to know what it says. Sincerely, Chris Sackis. Postscript. All right, so here's the rest of the story. Here's what happened after I forwarded that letter to uh, the onboard customer service rep. At 8.50 a.m., I finished my conversation with Diana, the train service manager. She was incredibly pleasant and actually nice. She asked me what had happened. I read her my letter. She listened patiently, and when I was done, I asked her if I was being paranoid or if, indeed, the conductor and the two crew members had tried to roust me. She admitted they had and should not have been eating in the coach car among sleeping passengers. She said she needed to get the complete version of the story for her report and didn't try to dissuade me from sending this letter. Much to her credit, you need more Dianas and less of the other three. She then offered me upgraded accommodations in the form of a sleeping car. She said that's what she could do for me right now. Any other compensation would be decided on by the central office. I told her I would think about it and get back to her. I didn't know that I needed a sleeping car. What I need is an apology and a refund. I don't feel Amtrak has provided me with satisfactory service at all this far. I don't even want to take the train back, but don't have much of a choice, frankly. September 2nd, 1997, 7.40 p.m. We're almost there. Thank God. The situation resolved itself like this. Diana spoke to the head office in Washington, D.C., and they told her to tell me to mail the letter, which means they won't do crap, basically. Those bastards. They screwed with the wrong guy. So I got back home from New Orleans, and about a month later, a letter arrives from Amtrak. And guess what? They offered me a free trip, and I took them up on it. Yes, that's right. I rode the train again, this time to Toronto, and this time with no drugs coursing through my system. You've been listening to the Amtrak Journals on Aerial View on WFMU.org. I'll be back next week. Thanks for joining me. Visit me online at Aerial View. See you next Tuesday. See you next Tuesday.